Super Bowl Sunday. Glad you took a little time out of your day today, this morning, to come. And uh, I hope that you can celebrate a little bit. I hope your team wins. I won't say which team I'm cheering for because I'll probably lose 50% of you right off the bat. So I'll just, I'll stay neutral on that one. It's good to be here today. You know, um, we're kind of going through a tough time right now, it seems. There's a lot of illness and some good brothers and sisters have passed away and uh, there's some grieving. But in the middle of all that, I see God. I see God's goodness. I see God's comfort. Uh, the reality of who he is. And so it's good to be here today with all of you to be encouraged. I think we all need that. And I want to encourage you to consider the prayer gathering on the 9th. Come, be a part. We're going to read scripture together. We're going to pray together. We're going to be silent together, all of those things. But I think there's something about the community of believers coming together to pray that is powerful. And so I want to encourage you to consider being there with us that morning. We're in Luke 9 today, we're continuing on in the story of how the Son of Man is coming to seek and to save the lost. That's what it's all about, Luke 19.10. He's the Son of Man. He came down to earth. He took on human flesh. Why? Because he wants to seek, he wants to find, he wants to invite, he wants to welcome those that are lost because he wants to save them. I want you to think about how that applies to us. That's our calling, isn't it? Those of us that know Jesus, we know the Son of Man. If you're in a relationship with him, guess what? We're invited to become part of his mission, which is get out there. Seek and save those that don't know him. If you don't know him, guess what? You're part of that mission too because he's calling you today. He's working in your heart. He's saying, I'm welcoming you. I want to be in relationship with you. Please, please seek me out. Please come to me today. That's the story of Luke. Very simple. So every story that we read as we move along is about that. Today we're in the school of discipleship. You know, there's really different ways to learn. As a teacher, I understood that, and I tried to incorporate some of them into my classroom. We learn by experience, by getting our hands in there and getting dirty and getting down and doing things. So we learn just by experiencing things. That's a powerful tool to learn. We learn by watching and observing other people do things. There's a great thing as a teacher, you can model learning to your students. We also learn by being in the classroom, whether it be reading, doing an assignment, learning by listening and taking in information. And what we're gonna see in Luke 9, the first 27 verses today, is Jesus is gonna use all three forms of teaching to teach his disciples two very important lessons. The first lesson is on dependence. He's gonna teach them they need to depend on him. The second lesson that he's gonna teach them is about what does it mean to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. So there's two big lessons that he wants to teach but he's gonna take them through an experience first, then he's gonna have them observe a miracle, one of the great miracles, and participate in the miracle with him, and then the last thing he's gonna have them do is just listen as he teaches them some things about what does it mean to be Messiah, and what does it mean to be a disciple? So experience, just watching and observing and listening. How many of you parents remember the days of taking your kids through the whole driving experience and learning? Remember those days? Some of you are heading there, you're close. One of the best things that they came up with, and this was in the time since I learned to drive, I just kind of learned to drive by being with my parents and then doing it on my own type thing. But somewhere along the path, they added this thing called driver's education. Very helpful. And in the driver's education, there's the three ways that they learn how to drive, right? Okay, the one way is you sit in a classroom and you take in notes, facts. What do these signs mean? What are all the laws out there? What are all the rules of the road? So there's classroom learning that they, they do. Then you get in a car. There's the experience part of it. Part of the time you're sitting in the back observing somebody else driving. Now that has to be scary. Think about it. 
you're a student watching another student drive. Fortunately, the teacher's there to kind of help, right? So there's the observing part, and then there's the day where you get behind the wheel with a teacher right there beside you, and you get to drive. So we see these three ways of learning, and we're gonna see that today in this chapter. And again, this is something I've mentioned, but we'll keep, we'll keep seeing this throughout Luke, is the difference between being a follower of Jesus, a convert, and a disciple. There really is a difference there. Discipleship is not a requirement of a convert, but it's the proof, it's the evidence that you are a convert. It comes out in your life. Believing in Christ is free. It's offered freely to everyone to receive. Being a disciple costs something. It costs your life. It's costly. Conversion is immediate. It happens the moment you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a new child in him. You are born again then. That is powerful. It's a one-time thing, but here's the reality. Discipleship is that lifelong process that we're all in. Once we come to know Jesus, it doesn't end there, right? We grow. We continue to grow. We've never learned everything that God wants to teach us. There's always something that he wants us to learn. So let's take a look at verses one to 17. We're gonna see some lessons on dependence. I'm just gonna read this first section and we're gonna see how Jesus led his disciples in the school of dependence. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Wow. So they set out, they went from village to village proclaiming the good news, healing people everywhere. They went out, the experience. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on. He was perplexed because some were saying that John, now John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared, still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. Sounds a little creepy, doesn't it? But Herod said, I beheaded John. He's dead, I know that. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. He took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. Okay, there it is. He can't get away or nothing. He welcomed them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. We're out in the sticks. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread, two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves, the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and they were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Wow, what a miracle that was. So there's two parts here. There's the sending them out the experience part, then there's gonna be the miracle part. So verses one to six says he sends the 12 out. He called them together there in verse one. One of the commentaries said this. It said, we should not exaggerate the amount of time the, the apostles spent together. Some had homes and families in Capernaum, and we're, we need not doubt that they spent some of their time at their homes. 
What they're saying is that when they were in the north, where a lot of the disciples lived, they would occasionally go home and be with their families and things like that. So it wasn't like they were 24-7 yet. That happened later as Jesus went south into Jerusalem, away from their homes and their families. But he called them together. He said, guys, I got something I want to do here. I want to send you out on a little mission. And he gives them power and authority there in verse 1. Power, the Greek word is dynamis, dynamite. It's the same word that we get our word dynamite. I mean, this is Jesus' power that he's just giving his disciples here at this time. And he gives them the authority. That's his, the right in his name. He's saying, go out, I'm giving you my power, I'm giving you my name. And go out and proclaim and heal. I want you to care for people's souls, but I also want you to care about their physical, about the needs of what's going on in their lives. This isn't a drive-by gospel. This is a gospel that comes into people's lives and cares and shows compassion. And that's what Jesus did. He modeled that. He had already been doing that. He's just asking his disciples to go out and do the same. Take nothing for the journey. Okay, I'm gonna send you out. We don't know how long it was, but we know it was days because they're spending the night. But I want you to take nothing for the journey. I don't know about you, but I tend to overpack when I go out. That's just me. I wanna be, make sure I got everything I need just in case. So something warm, something cool, something, you know, books to read, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus is saying five things. He says, I want you to leave these things off your packing list. The first thing is your staff. That was used for walking, but it was also used for protection. On the roads those days, in the Good Samaritan parable, we'll learn about this, but there were robbers and thieves that would congregate and wait for people to, to walk along and beat them up and take their stuff. So often they would take this staff for walking as well as protection. He says, leave it at home. Depend on me. Here, I'll protect you. You're okay. I want you to leave your bag at home. The bag here is a reference to something that would be worn around their neck, a small bag that they would put money in. And in Jesus' time, in this context, there were these wandering philosophers who would go out and people would give money to them. What Jesus is basically saying is, I don't want you to be like them. I want you to go out without the appearance of, pro of trying to earn a profit. It, that's not what it's about here. It's about getting the message out, about telling people about me. I don't want you to go out. I don't want any appearance here of preaching for profit. Leave that bag at home. There's no bread. Don't take any bread with you. Now, by bread, it's not just the bread. Bread was kind of a general term which meant food. Go out, no snacks, guys. No Cheez-Its, no Fritos. Trust me. Now, what we're gonna see when we get to bread, we're gonna see it in the feeding of the 5,000, we're gonna see it throughout Scripture is there's that reference that we have of Jesus being the bread of life. Jesus saying to them, trust me, I am the bread of life. I'll take care of you. Trust me to be your bread. Don't take a big loaf from Great Harvest with you, okay? I've got you covered. Don't take any money. That's pretty obvious. No financial support there. You're going to have to lean upon others to provide. No extra shirt. This was a garment that would be worn underneath their tunic up against their skin. And Chuck Swindoll, he says, no change of socks or underwear, in essence. No, no shirt, no extra shirt. Now, what's, what's going on? What are the lessons that Jesus wants to teach here? Well, first of all, he says, don't take a bunch of time packing. Get out there. This is an important message. It needs to be told, and we can't waste time preparing for the journey. See, his ministry in Galilee is coming to an end. From this point forward, he's going to be moving into different areas and eventually down south into Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. But the northern ministry part is coming to an end here. And so this is important, Jesus says, we need to get the word out. So don't waste your time packing. But more than that, I want you to depend upon me fully. So take nothing, pack light. There's a great quote by Hudson Taylor who is kind of considered the father of missions. 
He founded the China Inland Mission. Um, he had some incredible quotes, but this is one that stuck by me through the years. If you want to shoot that one up there. God's work done God's way never lacks God's supply. If it is God's work, if we're doing it the way that he wants us to do it, guess what? He will provide. We don't have to worry about it. Isn't that profound? And that's what Jesus wanted to teach his disciples. You're doing my work, you're gonna do it my way, and I'm, I'm gonna provide it. It's that simple. And then he gives two final instructions in verses four and five. Stay in the same house until you leave. I don't want you moving from house to house. Why is that? Because I want you to focus again on the ministry, not where you're spending the night that night. So when you come to a town, find a place. People are very hospitable in that culture. Find a place and stay there. I don't want you upgrading either, going from a three-star to a four-star home. None of that. Get there, stay there, focus on the ministry, not your lodging. And then he tells them, if you get no response in that town, I want you to shake the dust off your feet. What, what is he talking about there? Well, what he's talking about is he's preparing them for the inevitable rejection that's gonna happen. He knows it. There's gonna be towns that you come into where nothing happens, they're gonna reject you, and you're gonna leave there frustrated. But he says, here's what I want you to do, just shake the dust off your feet. It's this idea of symbolizing this break in association. We're done here, we're moving on. And I think there was even something deeper in this. In Jesus' time, there was this rabbinic tradition, this idea that the dust of the Gentile lands carried defilement. And so when Jews, who felt that they were superior to the Gentiles, when they'd travel, they'd get, they'd get dust on their feet from these Gentile towns, and then when they get back in Israel, they'd kind of kick that dust off, in a sense. It's symbolizing judgment. If they reject your message, guess what? They will face the judgment. So shake that dust off. Now, verses 7, 8, 9, Luke inserts this little piece for us into the middle of the story. It's unique to Luke, uh, but he talks about Herod. It seems a little bit out of context, but I'll explain maybe why. But Herod, he's perplexed. He's heard about all this that's going on. He's perplexed, and people were saying all kinds of things about Jesus. Some said he's John the Baptist. Some say he's Elijah. Some say he's some other Old Testament prophet that's come back to life. And it's giving Herod the creeps. He's perplexed because he had killed John the Baptist. Going back earlier into the book of Luke, John the Baptist had spoke out against Herod and said, Herod, you're living in sin. You've basically cheating on your wife with your brother's wife. And you're just living life like it's no big deal. And John the Baptist called him to account. And Herod didn't like that. And so there was the party where he threw, where he, there was a dance, and the request was made for John the, head, John the Baptist's head on a platter, if you remember that story. And it, this was all with Herod. And so he had taken care of John the Baptist. He had him killed. And now, something's going on here. Is this John the, really? Or is it Elijah? What's going on? Now, why would they say that? Why would they think it would be one of these prophets. Well, Malachi verse, chapter four, verse five, said it was right there, that last chapter at the end of the Old Testament, before the quiet 400 silent years, before the coming of Christ, there's this prophecy in Malachi. It says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. In the Israel's mind, Elijah was coming at some point. So they were looking for someone like Elijah to appear. So that's why Elijah's name kind of popped up once in a while in people's thinking. There's another verse going further back into the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18, 18. This is a promise made by God to Moses. This is what it says. I will raise up for them, them meaning Israel, a prophet like you from among your, their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth he will tell them everything I command him. A prophet like you, Moses, I'm gonna raise him up and I'm gonna put my words in his mouth and he's gonna tell you everything I want them to hear. Who's he referring to? It's Jesus. So people knew of these verses. They knew of the promises. 
So in their minds, all this was stirring, and Herod was curious and perplexed. And So why does Luke insert that into this story? It seems a little bit out of place. I think the reason is, and we're gonna see this as we move through this chapter, Jesus wanted to teach who he was. So the question is with Herod, who is this? He actually asked that there in verse nine. Who is this I keep hearing about? Is he a prophet? And he wanted to see Jesus. Doesn't say he actually got, ever did, but he wanted to somehow meet this person. He was just really stirred by that. In verses 10 through 11, there's this debrief and rest. They come back from their mission. It says, when the apostles returned in verse 10, they reported to Jesus what they'd done. A lot of good stories. Uh, Probably a lot of hard stories to hear too. Uh, Maybe some celebration, maybe some frustration. All this came up, but it's a good debrief time. Guys, tell me, how'd it go? Let's talk about this a little bit. Let's, Let's learn a little bit. Some more learning going on there. So then he took them with him. They withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. So there's this idea that he wanted to give them a little bit of rest. They were worn out, of course. They were tired. They needed a break. They're not gonna get one, not a very long break. So he withdrew them away from the main center there into the hills, north of the Sea of Galilee, to a place that was remote and quiet and they could rest. I wonder in the reporting, uh, notice that the focus there is not on the number of converts, but on the impact of the life on their trip. I th- Here's what happens sometimes when we hear reports from missions trips. We want to know numbers, and that's good. I think that's important. Did people come to know Jesus? We want to hear the, the reports in that sense. And so in our minds we think, okay, if a large number came to know Jesus, that trip was a success. But on the other hand, if people kind of ignored it and things didn't go well and people didn't really respond to the gospel, then the trip wasn't really a success. And here's what I want you to hear is that what Christ wants in our lives is we can leave the change of hearts up to him. If people respond, it's his work, praise goes to him. We do our part, we prepare, we share the gospel, but ultimately, the response to that gospel is, it's God's thing, not mine. But here's what God wants of anyone going on any trip or sharing the gospel at any time in their life is heart change in my life. When I go on a trip, what's important is not just what happens over there to the people over there, but what happens to me when I return. Have I changed? Have I been impacted? Have I grown in my understanding of grace and understanding who Jesus is? That's the report that I think is so important. We're gonna be sending a team to Portugal here in the summer. My heart, my desire, yeah, I wanna hear stories of people coming to know Jesus, and I think that's gonna happen. But here's what I also wanna hear is, I wanna see people on the team changed. I wanna hear stories of what God did to them while they were in Portugal. That's what I wanna hear too. I get excited about that just as much as what, how many people came to know Jesus. So it's both, right, the report. I think in this idea of traveling light, I think the message is lighten up. Don't trust on stuff, but trust in the Lord. Depend on him, and then toughen up. I think the idea of shaking dust off your feet, sometimes it's hard when people don't respond to our ministry or when we share the gospel and we get the door shut in our face. What Jesus wants us to hear today is we need to maybe toughen up a little bit and realize, look, okay, I'll shake the dust off, so to speak, and move on. I'll let God deal with them. Maybe through another witness later on. Maybe they'll come to the Lord through that. Great, but for right now, it's... I'm gonna trust him, and I'm gonna toughen up and move forward. The feeding of the 5,000, verses 12 through 17. This is the only miracle apart from the resurrection that's recorded in all four of our gospels. So there's something in this great miracle that all of the authors of the gospels want us to know. So consider that. It's a powerful story. It's a powerful miracle. Again, we're moving from Jesus experiencing, just sending them out, all by their lonesome and trusting him. 
Now they're gonna be right next to him, watching, observing, and eventually jumping in with him right there with them. So it's a beautiful mixture of the two. Now, in some explanations out there, there's books that are written, and there are people that doubt, and there are skeptics, and with any miracle, there are people say, you know, there's no such thing as a miracle. Well, as believers, we understand, yeah, there is because there's a God who does miracles all the time, right? Sometimes we don't even realize it. But he did miracles, he, he does miracles, but there's a couple explanations for this miracle that I find almost humorous that explain away this whole idea of how he could feed 5,000. 5,000 really meaning more like 12,000 when you add women and if there were children, puts it more 12, maybe 15,000 people. That was significant. So how could he take five loaves, two fish? And there's a couple of weird explanations I came across. One is, as Jesus was ministering there in the hills, there was some kind of a cave that him and his disciples were aware of where there was food in there. And so he's like sending his disciples, hey, you know, take a hike back to the cave, grab some stuff, bring it out, bring some bread, fish. Of course, that's just stupid. There's no indication of that. That makes no sense. But, you know, when you try to explain away miracles, you come up with these things. It's just like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you try to explain away the resurrection, people come up with the most ridiculous explanations. What was the original one? His disciples stole the body. Really? Think about that. His dis- Do you know his disciples? They're a bunch of cowards. I mean, they're not going to... And you've got soldiers and, no, they did not steal his body. They couldn't, they wouldn't. So you come up with all these. And the other explanation is that once this little boy brought his lunch forward, and we find, and Book of John talks about that, that Philip, one of the disciples, they went out and they were out talking around. They found this little boy and he had a little lunch with him. Five loaves and two fish, right? So the explanation is that once the other people saw this little boy giving his lunch, then they all kind of jumped into it and brought their lunches to the table. Again, terrible, terrible uh, attempt. It's a miracle. All we have, five loaves and two fish, and there's this incredible miracle. I love verse 13. You give them something to eat. Think, okay, just put yourself there as one of the disciples and you're going, okay, and you're looking out over the vast 12 to 15 grand people. You've got this pathetic little lunch over here and then Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And you're, can you imagine the disciples are all looking at each other like, what is he talking about here? What's up with this? In fact, what they bring up is they have a practical concern here in verse 16. We have only five loaves and two fish. That's very practical. There's a lot of people. We have very little. It's a very practical concern. It sounds like this. We've never done it before, or we don't have the resources for that. Does that sound familiar to us when we do that with God? Well, that's never happened before. Or, man, we don't have the resources for that kind of thing. Well, when God is in it, the equation changes, doesn't it? It goes from five loaves and two fish only to more than enough. That's how the equation changes with Jesus in his power. Verse 16, look at the picture of Jesus there, how he responds. You know, he has them sit down, 50, groups of 50. Manage, you know, it's a good management thing, groups, so the disciples can distribute and things like that. But he takes the five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven, he gives thanks and breaks them, and then he gives them to the disciples to distribute. Does that sound familiar to you? Looking to heaven, giving thanks, breaking bread? Yeah, it should, it's communion. It's what we're gonna do today. It's the upper room. When Jesus was with the disciples, he gave thanks to his father, and he broke the bread and he gave the wine. The early church, when they read this miracle, when they taught this miracle, could not leave out 
the communion, the picture of the Last Supper, because in their minds, that was it. That's exactly what was going on here. And so the early church, they could not decipher the stories. They just, they just saw it, and that's what we see. There's this idea that he's, he's giving thanks. That's a Eucharist. We actually, that's a name that we call the Lord's table. You, giving thanks, it's part of it, why we come together. There's breaking of bread. It's just this beautiful picture of this huge group of people, and it's like the Lord's Supper there. Twelve baskets were collected. It says they all ate and were satisfied. Isn't that a picture of Jesus? When you come to Christ, he doesn't leave you half filled and half hungry. When you come to Christ, he is all sufficient. He satisfies. That's that's the story. That's the gospel. And I love that there's 12 baskets, one for each of them. Isn't that beautiful? So here's a basket for you, Philip, Nathaniel, Peter, Andrew, James, John, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Judas of Iscariot. Go out, collect all that's remaining, okay? Wow, that's pretty impressive. 12 baskets full that was left over after they'd eaten all that they wanted. God always provides more than we ask for. Ephesians 3, verse 20 You're probably familiar with this verse, but it says, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Isn't that beautiful? Immeasurably more than what we can ask or even imagine. That's what God wants to do through us by his power. Same story, same thing going on here. So this miracle, three reasons I think for this miracle. Number one, to answer Herod's question and other people's question about who Jesus is. Now we're gonna continue this on, but it's beginning to answer that great question. To show that he is a greater Moses than the original Moses. Just like Moses provided bread in a very remote wilderness place, so Jesus provides bread for his people in a very remote place. But this is a greater Moses. But there's something that they would have known maybe that we miss, and I wanted to bring this. He's showing that he's a greater Elisha, the prophet. In 2 Kings, verses 42 to 44, we have the story of the feeding of the 100 by Elisha, the prophet. I just wanted to read this story to you. It says, a man came from Baal, Shalishah, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat. Elisha said, had that same practical concern. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. We don't have enough. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them. They ate. They had some left over according to the word of the Lord. In the minds of the people there that day, they knew this story. And they would remember back to the days of Elisha the prophet and go, wow, just like God provided then for 100 with a larger amount, he can do the same here. And that word, by the way, when it says he gave his disciples the bread to hand out, it's, it's the idea of ongoing. So that he would give them this bread, they'd go out and distribute it, they'd come back to him and get some more and then go back out and read it. And, distri- and they kept doing that. And it's this beautiful picture of how God continually supplies for us. It's not just once, but it's ongoing, it's continuous. So it's just this beautiful thing. Who is Jesus? He's the bread of life. That's what he wants us to see. The book of John brings that out very clearly when it talks about this story, the feeding of 5,000. Then they're on the sea, and he speaks of how he's the bread of life. He does that miracle. He wants to teach dependence. He wants us all to embrace our inadequacies in him. Yeah, I'm inadequate. I, I don't have the resources. I don't have the talent. I don't have the knowledge. And what God wants us to hear is, yeah, that's right. You don't. Guess what? I know that, but I want you to do this, and I'm going to supply it for you. Abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine. Trust me. But it's the picture here of the messianic banquet of the Lord's Supper. These pictures are infused here and Jesus knew it. 
And there's a promise back in the book of Isaiah. There's several, actually. This is just one out of Isaiah 25. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. There's a promise that one day, in this place, all peoples will be at a, this incredible feast and banquet. And Jesus is beginning to open up people's eyes to that, the reality. This is coming true now, but not yet. Just starting, I'm giving you a little taste of it now, but guess what? There's something even greater coming down the road. And it's also, as I mentioned earlier, it's a picture of the Lord's Supper. So the second lesson, dependence, depend on me. But he wants to teach them who he is and who they are as disciples. So that's the next section, verses 18 to 27. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. We've already seen that with Herod's explanation. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Ooh, okay. Peter answered, and Luke simplifies it for us, but he says, God's Messiah profound. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Really? And he said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's who I am. That's what's going to happen. Then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose and forfeit their own soul? What a waste, right? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So first thing he wants them to know is who he is. We need to come to terms with that. He was praying with his disciples. We see this picture in Luke often. He prayed as he was in the water getting ready to be baptized. We saw that back in chapter three. He prayed in chapter six before he chose the 12. He spent the night in prayer with his father, Jesus did, praying. It was just something that he did. He modeled it for his disciples. But then he asked them this question. Who do they say I am? This is the sixth time in the book of Luke where that question has been asked. Starting in chapter four in the synagogue in his hometown, the people there said, Is this, isn't this Joseph's son? Then why does he claim to be the Messiah? Chapter seven, a couple times, are you the one? Disciples of John the Baptist had been sent by John to Jesus to ask him, are you the Messiah or not? Are we following the wrong person? Pretty profound question. At the end of chapter seven, who is this that forgives sins? That was in the Pharisee's house when the the sinful woman came to anoint his feet with that perfume and that beautiful display of worship. And the Pharisees and the other guests said, who is this that forgives sins? How can he claim to do that? Verse eight, in the miracle of the calming of the storm of the disciples out there in the middle of the sea, who is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? Are you kidding me? Who is this in chapter eight? Chapter nine, Herod, who is this that I'm hearing about? I don't get it, I keep hearing about this guy. And then here, who do they say I am and who do you say I am? You know, it's not so much important what other people say, who people say Jesus is. What is important is who you say Jesus is. Because here's the reality, knowing Christ is a personal discovery. I, you can take my word for it, and please do, because I'm gonna preach from God's word, okay? But at the end of the day, you have to take that and personally believe it yourselves and own it and come into a, a personal relationship with him. It isn't what mom and dad say. It isn't what my church says. It isn't what popular media says. It isn't what I hear on the radio or the TV. It's who do you say I am? 
That's the most important question that's asked. It's the most important question we can answer in this life. Who is Jesus? Peter gets an A plus. Nailed it, big time. God's Messiah. You're God's. You're the promised one. You're part of that plan from eternity past. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You've been promised us, you're here, and you're the Messiah. Hebrew Messiah, Christ is the same word, anointed one. You are the one who is the anointed one, the promised one. You are the king above all other kings. David was anointed one. He was the Messiah, small m. You're the Messiah with a big time capital. You're it. You're the one we've been waiting for. And then I love the response. Don't tell anyone. Verse 22, verse 21 there. Keep it quiet. Keep it among. What's going on? Why wouldn't Jesus say, man, get it out there? Let's get this out there. Let's make some billboards and put them on along the different paths and the roads. What's going on? Well, here's a couple things. One, the people weren't ready yet with an understanding of who he was. In the people's mind, the Messiah meant you're going to take over now. You're going to destroy the Romans and set up shop now. That wasn't what Jesus was about right then. He was about coming and taking our sins to the cross. And that would have been lost. But he also knew that his disciples were not ready yet. They heard Messiah, but did they really understand Messiah? If you could flash up this equation for me. E equals MC squared. How many of you know that equation? Are familiar with it? Okay, a few, a few hands, okay. How many of you could really explain to me what that is and how that's significant in my life? Do I have some scientists out there? Okay, after the service, I'm gonna come talk to you guys. Here's what I realized. I've seen this all, probably, I don't know, when I first saw this, but it's been a part of my life. For the, and the minute it comes up, I know it has to do with Albert Einstein, correct? Something to do with the theory of relativity, correct? Other than that, I'm lost. I have no idea how this applies to anything, or I could not explain this to you any further than that. That's where my knowledge stops. With the disciples, they'd heard Messiah their whole life. It was part of their culture. It was, they were looking for the Messiah their whole life. But what Jesus is saying to them, you might think you know what that means, but guess what? You have no idea. Your idea of Messiah is over here, and what I want you to know about me is over here. Let's talk. And so he leads them into some dialogue here. Four things in verse 22 that you need to know about the Son of Man. And they're gonna be different from what you expect from your Messiah. Here they are. He's gonna suffer. Ooh, really? That's his immediate future as well as he's gonna fulfill those suffering servant prophecies there in the book of Isaiah. That's him. There's suffering in his life. Suffering preceding joy. There's gonna be some hard times here, fellas. Then he's gonna be rejected. The Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin there, the three groups of people mentioned, they're gonna reject me. Psalm 118.22, and this is quoted again in the New Testament, but the whole idea of rejection, it says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The very cornerstone upon which God is building his kingdom, that's Jesus. But in his day, the builders, who would be the leaders, the Sanhedrin, are gonna reject him discredit him, kill him. That's the story. So he's gonna be rejected. He's gonna be killed. Now Jesus had already said this, but I don't think they heard him. I don't think they heard him even in the future when he said it some more. He's gonna be killed. Now to them this would have been very confusing and very polar opposite of what a Messiah would be. How can a dead man <laughs> overcome the Roman Empire? If you go to the grave and die, how's that gonna help us, Jesus? But then I love he adds the hope. He's gonna be raised back to life. This is a divine passive verb, meaning God's gonna do it. It's gonna happen to him. God will raise Jesus Christ back to life from the dead. That's the hope. Suffering, rejection, death, that doesn't sound very promising, but there's resurrection in there. How about us? 
thinking about, I was thinking about this this week, this idea of we know Jesus. That name, we love it, we embrace it, we take it upon ourselves as our identity. Do we really know Jesus? By that I mean, do we really understand the full concept of who he is and who he wants to be in our lives? Sometimes I think Christians who claim the name of Jesus and they are followers of his, but sometimes I think Christians use him as maybe a spare tire or an accessory, meaning this, he's there. I received him one time when I was a little kid back in VBS or whatever. And, but really from that point on, I've just kind of been marching to my own beat, doing my own thing. Now, when emergencies happen, I have a spare tire. My life, my, the train goes off the track, I lose a job, something terrible happens in my life, I have a spare tire, Jesus. He's there, so I put the spare tire on for a time, I pray to him, but then I replace that spare tire with the regular tire and go back about my business. It, is that what we do with Jesus? Do we really understand he's everything? If he's God's Messiah, King of kings, Lord of lords, everything in my life, it's not just I received him back then and now I'm doing my own thing, it's I received him back then and he's Lord of my life. And so I'm just growing every day in my relationship with him. So understanding who Jesus is, but he wants to go beyond that to who you are as a disciple. Verses 23 to 27. In verse 23, there's three commands. You're gonna need to, number one, deny, he says, deny themselves. Take up their cross daily, follow him. Those three things. That's a disciple. Deny yourselves. It's not self-actualization. It's not self-promotion. It's self-denial. How different is that from what the world tries to put on us, right? It's about, hey, it's about promoting yourself. It's about realizing who you are and all these things. No, putting aside your agenda for his. That's what it means when we talk about self-denial. God's agenda, his kingdom first. My agenda is denied, put aside for the purpose of his. Doesn't mean I'm not important. Doesn't mean I don't have value because I do. I'm in Christ. But my agenda is secondary to him. I'm denying self, taking up cross, living this crucified life. The cross is not literal here. The atonement or the sufferings are not atoning, but the suffering is real. And Jesus is setting them up and preparing them for that. And it's a daily thing. Luke adds the word daily. The other gospels just said take up your cross. Luke puts daily in there because it's a great reminder It's not just a one-time thing, it's a daily thing. And then follow, just follow me. That's a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. My friend Bob Harris, and we mentioned his service, and the flowers over there, a reminder of the service that we had here yesterday, but he had the saying, and I mentioned this in the service was, he says, I wanna walk so close to Jesus that I get dust from his sandals in my eyes. And I thought, that's it. I want to understand and follow and know Jesus, my Savior, and follow him so closely that I'm getting dust in my eyes here. That's how close I want to follow him. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. That's what you need to be. He's gonna give them three reasons in verses 24 to 26 to accept this challenge. The first one is a paradox. In verse 23, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, sorry, verse 24, If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. Everything here is upside down. If you want to save your life, you're going to have to give it up. What Jesus is saying basically to them is a Christian is given this life not for self but for others. I don't give you life so you can hoard it and enjoy it all yourself and hold on to it. I give you that life so you can enjoy it and share it giving that up, self-denial. Then he gives a hyperbole in verse 25. What good is it for someone, you can gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? So this hyperbole, this exaggeration statement of you can gain the whole world of stuff and lose me, your soul, your very self. Wow, what a waste. What Jesus is saying is that nothing, nothing material can compensate for what I'm sharing with you and a life lived for me, nothing, the whole world. 
Then he gives them a warning in verse 26 that's looking to the, the future, and it's a pretty stern. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes again in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is end time. This is the second coming. If you reject him now, he will reject you then. That's a pretty serious warning. Again, who is Jesus? Then, I love how he ends it, a bold reassurance in verse 27. He said, I say to you, truly, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. The kingdom is starting now. That's what Jesus is saying. You're in it. I'm here. It's now, but it's not yet. There's so much more looking forward. And what he was saying there was the next event, by the way, in this chapter is the Mount of Transfiguration where three of the disciples go up with Jesus and they see his glory. That's the first thing that he's referring to, but I think he's referring to the long haul. You're gonna see me die. You're gonna see me resurrected. You're gonna see me ascended into the heavens. You're gonna see the Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost. You're gonna see a lot of things in the kingdom of God and there's most of you who are standing here are gonna see that. Now there's a reference there, it's kind of a subtle reference to Judas Iscariot who will not be alive at the end. Uh, he's gonna miss it because of his own betrayal, his own choices. The kingdom is now, it's not yet. That's exciting, it's, con- it's inaugurated but not consummated. That's what his message. So the question for us is who's Jesus today? Who do people say I am? Okay, who cares? Who do you say I am? And you better base it on what God's word says, by the way, not on what people say. Following Christ involves more than just believing facts about him. Anybody can do that. He was a real person. He lived this life. Big deal. It's believing is putting your trust, your full trust and faith in him for your salvation. That's what believing means, and that's the important thing. And just like that day when Jesus looked up to heaven, blessed and gave thanks for the bread and he broke it, we're gonna do that today